Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Seattle in the 90s saw the birth of grunge. The punk metal hybrid of music was championed by the newly minted sub-pop records and by throngs of teens in ratty flannels and slept-in hair who felt connected with the message of discontent with the status quo. What started as an underground music scene in Seattle quickly caught on and grew all over the world. The angry and sometimes violent lyrics spoke to young people whose angst tainted their view of themselves, their families, and society as a whole. And in a small farmhouse in McCleary, Washington, it was the music of an Australian grunge band that some say inspired the murder of a mother, a father, and their five-year-old son at the hands of an angsty teen who just didn't seem to fit in. It's a crime that would end up changing the way Washington courts deal with killer kids forever. You can't just focus on the offense because these are kids. They're juveniles. You have to focus on the offender. You have to focus on their maturity, their ability to make decisions, and whether or not rehabilitation is possible for them. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. Wow, you just brought me back like however many years. I was like a teen in 1990, and I was a totally a part of the grunge scene in Seattle. And I, I, I like feel it's a badge of honor. Although now listening to what you know, what what happened, some deadly deed, which I don't know anything about this case. So I am I so excited. Finally, get to surprise you. I, I know, a, a I Seattle know. Area case that you haven't heard of. And here's the thing. And now I'm like sad because you know the grunge music is like it's such a huge part of my life. It's such a huge part of my history, and so I don't like to, I don't like it to be tainted in this way. But it's so ironic because my daughters, you know, now that we've all been quarantined, right, right, uh, and I've been quarantined with my five kids, and my older kids were like somehow they talked about boomers, and my daughter's like, you know, boomers are just like whatever. I don't even know what she was saying, and then she was like, looked at me. I'm like, I'm not a boomer. What are you talking about? And she goes, well, I know you're not. What are you? Generation what? And I'm like, Generation X. It's like. Like, that is like the forgotten generation. She goes, yeah, you guys are the angry ones, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's so funny. I, I, it was. So it's very ironic that you're talking about it right now. Well, I, I thought it would be fun to do an episode on what happens when kids are angry and frustrated. And I know a lot of parents are stuck at home with their kids right now. So I guess maybe might freak parents out a little bit, but that's not what is intended. It's more of a, be glad that you have the angels at home that you have. Well, yeah. Well, I think that might be going a little bit too far, but just to preface it, we're all dealing with the the COVID-19, the coronavirus, and it is scary and it is difficult. It's a difficult time right now. So I think that, um, you know, taking our minds off with a true crime story is is just the perfect antidote to being stir crazy. So Exactly. So it was the summer of 1995 when 16-year-old Brian Bassett and 17-year-old Nicholas McDonald hatched a plan. They would kill Brian's parents, steal the family van, and drive off to California. A former girlfriend described Brian as quiet and shy, but says he got into alcohol really bad. She says after two months of dating, they broke up 
because Brian became so drunk he had to be hospitalized for alcohol poisoning. She also said he always had a lot of anger towards his parents. She said he was always mad at them, but she never really understood why. That's kind of strange, because generally when kids are angry... If you do the research, backtrack it, there's usually a reason. Like, it's hard to imagine that there was no reason whatsoever. I don't know. I can remember being a teen and just life in general sucked so bad that I would get angry at the drop of a hat. Do you mean so, like school stuff sucks so bad or like what what sucks so bad? Home life. I didn't have the best home life. And so I was kind of always just unhappy in general. And so <laughs> yeah. I could see somebody saying this about me. Like really? I was always angry for like no reason at all. See, I was angry too, but I felt like I had a reason. And like you're saying, like you had a reason. But he I mean, I'm interested to hear what if there's no reason at all for this kid to be upset there other than might, the regular stuff. Yeah, there might be a reason, okay. but I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, as far as his friends and family knew, there was no reason. OK. Brian didn't have any disciplinary issues at school, but he did drop out about four months before the murders took place. And he'd been kicked out of his parents' house as well. As one family friend put it, it was a known fact that he was a little out of control but there's out of control and then there's killing your parents. Right. And you know what? This is interesting, though, because in the case with the Christmas carnage that we did, that happened after they were going to make her start paying rent or, you know, kick, they weren't hadn't talked about kicking her out. But maybe there's something to this idea of, you know, being kicked out. Clearly something was happening in that home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had yeah. to have kicked him out for a reason. Oh, yeah. Most parents don't just decide to kick their 16 year old out without some pretty good reason for it. Yeah. So Nicholas McDonald had a similar background. He dropped out of high school, but did manage to earn his high school equivalency. Brian's father, Michael Bassett, was a Vietnam veteran who enjoyed playing and coaching softball. Both he and his wife, Wendy, were members of the PTA, and they tried to stay active in the lives of their three children. In addition to Brian, they had an older daughter, Stephanie, and a younger son, Austin, who was just five years old. In August of 1995, when Brian was kicked out of the family home, he began to hatch this plan. He stole a check, forged it, and tried to get cash out of one of his dad's accounts. He also stole a 22 caliber rifle. We have Mr. Bassett who planned over the course of days or weeks to execute his mother and father, who prepared himself to do that by stealing a gun in advance, by fashioning a silencer so that he wouldn't be detected while he was doing it, by having his friend cut the phone lines of the house. So on Friday, August 11th, Brian and Nicholas had cut that phone line. They put a ladder under the window of Brian's old upstairs bedroom. Brian climbed in first and was confronted almost immediately by his father. He fired several shots and Michael staggered out of the room. Wendy heard those shots. She grabbed a bat and started climbing the stairs. But before she could act, she was shot as well. According to the trial testimony, while Nicholas was waiting outside, he heard all of these gunshots. And then Brian came back out and told Nicholas to go in and, quote, finish off his parents. When Nicholas entered, he saw Michael and Wendy on the floor, obviously shot, bleeding all over the place. And in between them, kneeling by their bodies, was five-year-old Austin crying. That is just unbearable. Yeah, apparently he had heard all of the commotion and woke up just in time to see his brother standing there after he had shot his parents. Nicholas told Austin to leave the room and told him to go to the bathroom and take a bath because he had blood all over him. 
and he told Brian that he could still hear his father breathing, so he picked up the gun and shot him one more time in the head. During his trial, Nicholas told the court that he went into the bathroom and saw Brian cleaning up and that Austin was already dead in the bathtub. You know what's so sad, too, is that the trusting five-year-old, you can just see it playing out. You can see the five-year-old confused with his parents and just like, and then trusting the older brother, despite all evidence to prove that this little child should not be trusting, going with him into the bathtub, doing what he says. I mean, it's just... A child's trust. Right. So while Nicholas told the court that he went to the bathroom, saw Brian cleaning up, Austin was already dead, Brian told a different story. He said Nicholas drowned Austin, holding the five-year-old under the water for three full minutes. And whether it was Brian or Nicholas, the terrible outcome obviously was still the same. The two teens loaded Michael and Austin's bodies into the family van and dumped them on a nearby logging road. They took Wendy's body to a pump house behind the house. Now, all three of the victims were found the next day. And while Brian and Nicholas were on their way to California, they never made it. Nicholas surrendered himself at a police station in Grants Pass, Oregon. And he led cops to Brian, who was asleep in the van at a nearby gas station. His attorney, Eric Lindell, would later claim that Brian was in some kind of psychosis during the murders. One of his first thoughts after he found himself in jail was, geez, my parents are going to be mad. And he was in jail for killing his parents. He didn't realize it. He didn't realize what was going on. The sole survivor of this whole family massacre was Brian's older sister, Stephanie. She'd been away at a softball tournament. And during the trial, she told the court that she is sure if she had been there, she would have been killed as well. And from that time, I've gone on to be married and have children and have create a really good life. Because I knew he was gone forever. I mean, that would be so scary to know that she, I mean, I believe her that, that she would have been, if he's capable of killing a five-year-old, whether it was him or Nicholas, I yeah. mean, he was capable and you know he could do the sister. If you could do the five-year-old, I mean, you could do the sister. That's almost the part that I think is the hardest to understand is, you know, I get maybe there was something going on between him and his parents and he was angry with them for whatever reason, but what the heck did a five-year-old do to you? You know, probably it was that the five-year-old would be a witness and they were so far into the the crime. I mean, that's one piece that could have happened. Or yeah. he could just be like, you know what? Jealousy, the sibling rivalry, even of a five-year-old. I mean, we don't really know what was going on in the household. We can assume things just from our own family background right. about sibling rivalries. I don't know. Do you have a? Do you have any siblings? I mean, what was that like for yeah, you? Yeah, well, I have an older brother who, yeah, would occasionally get violent with me when I was a kid. So I can understand the notion of truly hating your sibling. But I think it's different when it's a five-year-old. Like, Wait a second. When you use, I got to go here for a second. Okay, come on, Kim. Like, how violent are you? Because my sister would do some dastardly stuff to me, too. But I was annoying as hell as a little kid. You know so what I mean? So one I, of the things... Well, there's so many stories that stick out in my mind, but... I'll just tell you, like, so he would have his friends over sometimes and they would say, let's have a pillow fight. 
when we were in like elementary or middle school and you know I'm trusting sister and I wanted to be part of the group of I'd course. say sure well they would give me the lightest pillow and they would all take the rock hard pillows and then they would yeah. gang up on me and they would not spare their strength yeah that's yeah. just like one of the things yeah. and then you know I was once at my grandmother's house we were staying the summer with her up in northern California we lived in southern California at the time so my parents were eight hours away and my grandmother had gone to the store and for some reason my brother was upset with me and he literally threw me across the room onto this old organ that my grandmother had and broke a corner off of it with my body yeah and uh when my grandmother got back she was just really upset not at him but just at the fact that her organ was broken. I was going to say, please don't tell me she was just upset that you had damaged her yep. organ with your body. Yeah. So anyways, it was rough. When I was a kid, I had a pretty abusive relationship with my brother and my parents were kind of not in the picture. So it was allowed to continue. Yeah. So like I said, I can understand hating your sibling, but mm -hmm. that's kind of a side. That's I feel like I want to cut all this out. I feel like this has nothing to do with the story. I think it's good because it's getting to know you. What I love about it is you being vulnerable, which yeah. I know is difficult. And it's difficult for me, too. Well, I feel bad sharing these stories because my brother and I now actually have a fantastic relationship. And so I, I feel really bad sharing stories about things that he did when he was a teenager because he's know, not that person anymore. And, and here's the thing. They never got to know this in this family. And that's why it's so yeah. relatable, because the dastardly deed that this brother did, and I'm not comparing it to your brother, because my sister did some, like, I gave you the lighter version in my story, but, right. but, but I have the same kind of things. I think that family dynamic either bonds siblings together, maybe it, that are going through adverse situations, or it can tear them apart. And I mean, I'm right there with you, sister. Yeah. I mean, I I know that it's it's very it's very vulnerable siblings. It's it's just a tough situation. I'm glad that you ended up working it out with your brother. Yeah. And I think that's the, the 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 win on this. But a lot of siblings don't, you know. Well, and in Brian Bassett's case, he was convicted of all three murders, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of of parole. But his case would end up changing the rules for juvenile offenders in Washington state, because after decades of appeals, the state Supreme Court ruled that 16 and 17 year olds can't get life without parole because it constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. The law in the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. Supreme Court and now our state constitution has said when you have that type of situation, you've got to treat children for what they are. They're children and their brains aren't fully developed until they reach about the age of 22 or 23. So I think that's interesting, the question that we've asked so many times about like, when is somebody responsible for the crimes that they're committing when they're, when they're young and they're not an adult yet? And so he's saying 22, 23 is when your brain is completely done forming. Yeah, and I totally believe that piece, but I am really glad that I am not in a position to where I would have to make that, yeah. a judge to make that decision because you know, you think of the little five-year-old and you think of obviously the parents and what that family went through and the sister, you know, her whole family's gone. And yeah, yeah. so to make, to be the people that, that decide that is just, I'm glad I'm not in that position to have to make that. I mean, yeah. where would you fall? With you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. If you were, could you, do you know right now where you would fall? 
I mean, I don't know. I think it would depend on the situation. It would de- depend on the individual, like the, the teenager who was committing the crime. And Well, just so this is so fresh in all the research you've done on this case, let's just take a look at this case. Like, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I feel I wanna, like you... I want to get to the end of it get before I tell you what I think. Okay, sounds because good. Because there's a reason I... Nah, you get, you're giving me that little... Something Kim's that got thing. a little nugget in there. Okay, okay, I'm going to wait. So, Brian has been resentenced to 60 years in prison, so he'll likely be in his 70s before he's released. But for his sister, that's still too soon. And I find that appalling that you think you can come out of prison after you've destroyed so much. Michael's case is still in the appeals process. And now let's get back to that big question of why. There are two things that have been mentioned throughout these cases. The first is the song Israel's Son by the Australian grunge band Silverchair. Are you oh, familiar with yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. They had like, they're not one hit wonders, but maybe two or three hit wonders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is one of those songs. And part of the lyrics read, quote, my pain cannot heal. You will be dead when I'm through. Hate is what I feel for you. And I want you to know that I want you dead. You're late for the execution. If you're not here soon, I'll kill your friend instead. This song is something that the defense argued influenced Brian, and his attorney even wanted to play the song for the jury, but the judge would not allow it. Why? Well, because he said it would it would taint the jury, because it would make the jury think that, yes, he could have been influenced by this song, when there's really no other evidence of it than just the fact that, yeah, he listened to that song. Well, where do you land with music and it, I mean, music has such a huge effect. I'm not saying it in this case, but I do think, I mean, when I was a teen, I'd sit there, I was like feeling so sorry for myself for different reasons. You hear music, you know, getting back to that grunge. I suicidal mean, tendencies, like, man. When you're in a bad mood, <laughs> throw on some suicidal I, I tendencies. Yeah, exactly. Woo. And you just like kind of revel in that, yeah. like, you want to be sad. You want to be mad. You want to be, I mean, that's what it's all about. But I think that's exactly what it comes back to is, you know, in this day and age, we think of Facebook as like an echo chamber where we look at what we want to look at. We see what we want to see. And I think music is the same. You listen to the kind of music that you want, that you're in the mood for, Mm -hmm. and it it gives you that feedback of like, I'm angry, so I'm going to listen to angry music. It's going to make me angrier. And it's like a feedback loop Mm -hmm. that you have to like pull yourself out of. Yeah. And then the alcohol too, I think is is another. I mean, if he is drinking so much that he actually has to be hospitalized. I mean, I think that all of these things are interesting to talk about about because we're trying to understand as we always do why why would you do this not an, ex- an excuse but i think it's interesting to talk about so one other interesting thing that i noticed in the court documents from the trial of nicholas mcdonald this was never mentioned in brian's trial that i could find only in nicholas's trial and as far as i could see only once they describe brian as his boyfriend that opens up a whole nother can of worms. Because remember, this is the 90s. Yeah. And a lot of folks are still pretty reluctant to be accepting if their kids come out as gay. And there's no indication that that's why Brian was kicked out of his house about a week before the murders started. But it definitely makes me wonder about that. And I was doing a little bit of research. And in 1990, a court of appeals ruled that the federal government could deny security clearances to people simply because they were homosexuals. 
Senator Jesse Helms in 1994 talked about the homosexual lifestyle and the people he called degenerates and weak, morally sick wretches. In October of 1998, 21-year-old gay University of Wyoming student Matthew Shepard was beaten into a coma and tied to a fence post. So this is all happening in this time, in this Mm -hmm. era. And I could see where, you know, we don't know whether or not, you know, they were a couple, but it would make sense. It definitely adds to the story. Like, we don't know. But and it talks about that time period. I mean, I talk to my kids and we talk about this and they can't believe like when I would say like, yeah, when I was in high school, I didn't know anybody that was gay. And I'm sure there were tons of people that were not tons, but, you know, there were a lot of gay kids, but it was so closeted. And and I feel like it wasn't that long ago, but it was in terms of how I mean, we still have so far to go, but We've really come far compared to even, you know, back in the 90s. Yeah. So when you were asking me earlier, do I do I blame him, you know, for the murders? He was 16 years old. He wasn't an adult yet. And, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But I certainly think that if he was if, you know, he was 16, you know, he had a girlfriend before. So he was either. I mean, we don't know. But and isn't he, he married been, now? He's married now. I think. Yeah, I saw he got that. married while he was in prison. Yeah. He got married. So it's very possible that he was either bisexual or in denial about his sexual preference, or maybe Nicholas had some kind of desire or fantasy about the relationship that wasn't real at all, and Brian wasn't even gay. I mean, we don't we don't really know. Yeah. But I just think the possibility of that thrown in there certainly makes me think that it could have been a situation where he was kicked out for coming out to his parents and that threw him into a spiral. I mean, you heard so many of those stories in the 90s. There was so much depression and suicide in the 90s in the gay community in particular Mm -hmm. because people couldn't come out. Mm -hmm. And, And when they did, the reaction that they would get, even from their closest loved ones, could often be so negative that, you know, it, it sent them spiraling out of control. Yeah, I think that one other aspect of this that I thought was really interesting when you sent me the video was in the transcript or something, it said that the mom would, like, put a bat under her bed because she was really scared of him and that it he just was so angry and that it was ramping up and ramping up. I and mean, we don't know what the home life was like, but, I mean, as a parent, how do you deal with that? That's what I've been thinking about with this. Like, yeah. if, you fe- if you are actually afraid of your child... And you know that they could do... I mean, they obviously had a premonition that, that this something was going to happen. Right. Well, and I have a son who's six, I don't know, one or two. I don't know. He keeps growing every day. But he is bigger than I am now. And he is physically stronger than I am now. So he, I mean, if he decided to do some damage to me, he definitely could. Yeah. I, I don't I'm know. Not I mean, because I think no, it's, it's funny, scary. but it's scary. Yeah. But I'm not afraid. I don't think he's going to do anything. And I'm perfectly comfortable. Of course. But... Even he, like, sometimes doesn't know his own strength and will do things like trying to play around but then Mm -hmm. end up hurting somebody just because he doesn't realize how strong he has become. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think that there's a lot of questions and a lot of answers that we just we're never going to get the answers to. But I could just picture this kid like, you know, getting wasted, uh, you know, listening to that grunge, that kind of rocking and just feeling sorry for yourself, being upset and angry. Who knows about whether he's gay or not? You know, but that's just another component to the story. And right. we're in the 90s. I mean, 
I remember when I was when in news radio and I was talking to one of the talk show hosts and they started talking about Nirvana and he was really upset when he found out that Kurt Cobain was, you know, he saw this video of Kurt with his with his daughter and he was like holding a butcher knife or something. And so he just was like, really, he looked up to Kurt so much and idolized him so much. And he was so influential in his life as a teen, as an angsty teen. And then as an adult, it's like, he couldn't forgive him for it. And he was, you could tell that as we were sitting here talking about Kurt Cobain on live radio and you could, he was like wounded, you know, from, from being, I mean, it had such, you know, this music has such an influence on us. You You know, know what's crazy though is when I was that age, I mean, I graduated high school in 1995. So I was really close to the same age as this kid. Mm -hmm. I listened to this music, but it never hit me that it was so angry and that it was so violent. And yeah. like now when I listen back, I can hear it in the lyrics. But mm-hmm. at the time, it really didn't occur to me what I was listening to. I didn't think of it as angry either, but I don't think of myself as being a Generation X that I was... I feel like I was angry, but not in a, in a murderous, like, angry way. It was right. more just like we were... Like, angry screw at the world. I just want to yeah, get away. And, it, yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, at the same time, I was wearing wool sweaters and Birkenstocks and wanting to save the world too. So I mean, it's like I felt like it just really fit that yeah. time of of not being like our parents and not being like you know we wanted to be different. And anyway, that's how what I take away from Generation X. I don't well, and I, talk about three sixty man. I now have a fifteen year old son who literally told me he wants to learn how to play guitar because he heard Kurt Cobain play it, and he wants to learn how to play like that. That's cool. And he's now listening to Nirvana, Pearl Jam, all these bands that I grew up with. And he's cracking up because I know the words to all the songs. And he's like, Mom, shut up! Oh, my gosh. But, uh, but no, I'm like, man, I hope he's not that angsty. I mean, he's, of course, an angsty teen because what teen isn't? But no, this is such a <laughs> this is such a rarity. I mean, this is so like, but it is something to... I might have know. to put a baseball bat under my bed just after no. doing this story. <laughs> I mean, jeez. No, no. I... I I think that um, because of probably we're going insane because of the COVID-19, being at home, being stuck at home, what's it been like for you? What is your routines and how have you been? I'm actually considered uh, essential personnel, so I'm actually still working. Oh, man. Because I'm a producer at uh, NPR station Mm -hmm. in Seattle, so I am still going to work every day. But my kids are home when I get home, and my Mm -hmm. mother-in-law is there, and they've been stuck in the house for how whatever a week now mm-hmm. they're getting a little tired of mom putting them to task mm-hmm. i'm giving them plenty of hard work to do and i'm not talking about school work i'm talking <laughs> physical labor you know what that's what get I'm... them out yes. of the house wear them out yeah makes life easier for everyone you know what that's so funny i think everybody's kind of in that same mode of wanting to do the same thing like i saw this like meme where it showed like before the coronavirus you know the families inside on their gadgets and then after everybody's like hiking and like you know like <laughs> there's something about being outside and it's been so great in seattle especially this week the sunshine has been out and i feel that same thing like i can do the home ec stuff i can do like the family stuff but like the idea of sitting down because i'm getting these emails that are kind of stressing me out where they want us to do this homeschooling and i'm just like i looked at paul my husband and i'm just like how can they expect us to do that in my mind it's like my job as a parent is to keep myself and my family 
alive and sane. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then anything on top of that, like homeschooling, is just kind of a bonus, like gold star for you. But I don't think that that should be the standard of what you're expected to do in this situation. Yeah. And especially since they don't have it set up. Right. Where they, you know, basically they're wanting us to go online and get these handouts or something like like there's no I have a daughter who's in another school where it's a really small private school. And so they're doing online and she has been just like so busy, like I'm on a conference call. Can you guys be quiet? You know, she's been doing it like the whole day. And that is great because then she can go to school and they have everything there. But what was awesome is that I woke up the other morning and I was feeling kind of the stress like should I be doing more stuff with them? And my insides like, no, I'm getting them out. We're doing gardening. We're all the stuff that you were talking about. And I saw the funniest. My husband was up and he's like, you have got to read this. And it was so timely. Uh, John Medvin, he's a writer. He's written three books. One of his books is called Therapy Mammals. He basically wrote this book about this this guy who just discovered he's an unwitting investor in a macabre tourism company bringing wealthy European sightseers obsessed with America's murder culture to explore mass shooting sites. So he's kind of like a kindred spirits with us. He's a fan of true crime. And he's also all over with pieces in the New York Times, the Atlantic, BuzzFeed. But his latest piece in McSweeney's is what got my attention. I don't know. Have you? Are you familiar with McSweeney's? I've heard of it. They're like the champion of like funny, fun, unique, and inspired writing. And of course, they love satirical writing like John's latest piece that he's titled, in all caps, Effective Immediately... <laughs> We are closing our homeschool. Now, John lives in New York City with his wife and two kids. And his piece was so timely because at around the same time, you know, we're thinking about the homeschooling thing that we're doing or not doing, as it were. Right. So basically, I have to read a little bit from the piece just to give you guys a flavor Now, this is, as I said, this is satirical. He says, despite beginning this venture with the highest aspirations, we are announcing the closure of our beloved homeschool after less than 24 hours. Our principal, your mother, would have delivered this news in person. Unfortunately, she was up late commiserating over homeschool duties with the other neighborhood homeschool principals and was unable to get out of bed for morning announcements. (laughs) Now, this reminded me of you because you were saying... about how all your mom friends were like, hey. Yeah, we're all getting together, hanging out, planning parties. <laughs> yeah, so so anyway, I ended up reaching out to him because I thought it would be fun to do a quick interview and just kind of, you know, gab about this new reality that we're all dealing with. And Kim, it was just so great to laugh together, my husband and I, like reading the satirical piece. And it was a dose of medicine I sorely needed. And so when I reached out to John and I asked him, what was kind of the inspiration behind the piece? And this is what he said. My wife and I were, were talking about how we were going to homeschool our kids. And it, it just came, we came up to, with this same situation that you're probably dealing with, all parents are dealing with, is, is how do you do this? How do you maintain a household, do your job, and, and keep your sanity? And how do you do this all at once? And it, we just don't have any answers. That's our biggest issue is the fact that my husband and I are still working. Yeah. And our kids are home and, and this teachers have been really great about 
we don't have actual homeschooling that they're doing in our district, but the, all the teachers are sending home possible assignments, things that you can be doing, videos you can be watching, websites to go to, that sort of thing, activities to do. But we just don't have the time to pull it all out and give it to the kids and make sure they're doing it and all that. We're still working. Yeah. And, and my husband's working too. He's working from home. He works at Starbucks. They've just been fantastic. And shout out to Starbucks and the drive-thru because, you know, uh, I'm totally addicted. And I just feel like as I go through the drive-thru and they're all smiling there, I feel like I want to say thank you for your service, right? right? <laughs> they're they're first like, responders. I mean, yeah. I mean, really, it's like the only thing I've gotten out of the house to do is to go to Starbucks. But anyway, I digress. That's basically where we're at, too, except for, you know, I can't manage all the different grade level. You know, having five kids. Oh my like, God, tell I, me. I, just I have four can't... kids yeah. and they're all in different. I've got one elementary, one middle, yeah. two high school. The high schoolers, of course, have, you know, eight different teachers. It's like, there's no way the number of emails that I'm seeing from the teachers. Me I mean, too. I love the teachers and the yeah. fact that they're still trying to be on top of it and trying to help the kids like continue progressing in their mm -hmm. studies and all that. Like, I love it. But the reality is... I cannot read 100 emails a day and then also pull down, you know, the assignments. And like I said, it's just it's too much. Well, and, and that's why when I read the piece, it so resonated with me because I was I'm pretty much a go with the gut type person. My gut was saying, you know, just do active things with them. Just get them to do, you know, just spend family time. Just try to keep calm and 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 don't sweat this because in, in the scheme of things, being a good role model for them really is my number one priority. And I asked John about the response to the story, and he said it's just been incredible. I mean, I feel like we're like many parents that are having this, these feelings. You know, I think a lot of people are able to maybe laugh at, at the situation that we're in because it's really unprecedented, and, and nobody really knows how to do it. We certainly don't. I, we haven't figured it out. We're just really trying to... You know, keep the kids engaged, not panic, not show them, you know, make sure that they, they still understand, you know, we're their parents and, and we're there to, to solve all these problems. Most of the people that have reached out to me have said the same thing. I haven't really had anybody write to me saying I'm an awful person, which is surprising because a lot of the times that's what you get when you write that time. Yeah, because he basically is like so, you know, true blue in this piece. He doesn't yeah. hold back on any punches. And so that's what I uh, appreciated it. But I also remember, I don't know if you ever have heard of Jonathan Swift's historical satirical piece back in the I was an English lit major, so my nerd is coming out. Okay, I'm but, like, mm, But nah. basically it was a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people from being a burden to their parents or country. So they basically were kind of like saying, oh, well, you, you know, Irish people should sell their babies for English people to eat because of the poverty and all that. Yeah, and that doesn't sound funny to me. No. It, well, it was totally satirical. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't. But but in this case, it worked. And actually, his piece worked because, we're you know, people are still talking about it. But I think that that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk with you about this is because these types of stories are such a gift because I, I've been, I don't know about you, but I've been addicted to social media because that's where I'm getting the latest news and and trying to, you know, of course, go to the official websites as well, but just to keep up to date because everything seems to be changing so fast. But one of the things that I feel like is so missing is this kind of content where it's like, you know, it can bond. It's like the, the people singing in the Italian balconies. Yes, and, I and, love and, that. And, and yeah, and just this kind of like humor of like, yeah, you know, we're all just trying we're all just trying to figure it out. I guess that that's why it resonated with me so much. I think it's an interesting break from our usual routine in so many ways. And one of them, 
is the competitive nature of parenting. Yeah. You know, we ding, all ding, 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 ding. want our kids to succeed. We want them to get the best grades. We want them to go to the best colleges and all this. But you know what? When nobody's in school, it kind of takes away that level of competition. And I think there's there's some people who might feel pressured to make sure that you're continuing the schooling so that your kid doesn't fall behind. But it's like, guess what? No, you're falling behind who? Mm-hmm. Because everybody's staying home. Yeah. So and- you're not falling behind anybody. Like, just chill out. Mm-hmm. It's okay. This, you know, whatever, three, six months or whatever it'll end up being will be a blip in in history. It's nothing. I think that you and I are kind of like having so many kids like we can. That's how you survive having that many kids is having that mindset if you try to control everything. Right. But I think a lot of people, they need, you know, and I talked with John about that. Like he feels like even though they tried the homeschooling thing, like they're still you know, you need that kind of control, and we don't have that right now. At the heart of it, that's what it is. It's, it's me trying to make light of the situation that's uncontrollable. Take your kids out, play with them, you know, read a book, watch a movie, just hang tight, just don't take this too seriously. Nothing like this has ever happened, so, like, your kid's not going to get into Harvard just because you took the first month of the coronavirus off and played with them, spent time with them. Thank you very much. I wholeheartedly agree. And I do, too. So I hope that us taking a little detour on this will, you know, make people feel like, hey, it's okay. We're all just trying to figure it out. And there's not going to be a test at the end of this. And there's no and there's no (laughs) homework. Okay. I'm Kim. She's Carolyn. And this is the scene of the crime. 